Hello, I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and we welcome you to this Daily Journal podcast uh, with Mark Hathaway and Jenna Parker of the firm Hathaway Parker, who will be talking about their extraordinary work in the area of sexual harassment and sexual assault on campus under Title IX and various regulations. Before we do that, let me say that if you would like MCLA credit for this hour and you go to dailyjournal.com or dailyjournal.com slash podcast, and both of those websites are outside the Daily Journal paywall. You do not need to be a subscriber to the Daily Journal to listen to this or get MCLA credit. If you go to one of those websites, dailyjournal.com or dailyjournal.com slash podcast, you will see this podcast and a link to an MCLA test that you can take, send into the Daily Journal, and you may get the one-hour CLE credit for having listened to this. Today, we're very pleased to have with us Mark Hathaway and Jenna Parker. As I mentioned, their firm is Hathaway Parker. Uh, Mark Hathaway admitted to practice not only in California, but Illinois, New York, and the District of Columbia, began as a certified specialist in tax law, but then has gotten involved in various administrative issues, financial crimes, government fraud, and that led to him, because of something we'll talk about, to his getting involved in Title IX issues originally with a family friend. And he and Hathaway Parker uh, since then have become uh, a very noteworthy firm in this area. Uh, Jenna Parker is admitted to practice in California and, interestingly, has a background in, in jury consulting, trial and jury consulting. Uh, she's been involved in representing over 100 students and professors through the administrative disciplinary hearings that are involved in, in Title IX proceedings. Uh, and together, uh, it, it's not often that lawyers and law firms can make impacts on the law, but their work has led to significant impacts, especially uh, in the California cases. But before we talk about that, Mark and Janet, tell us, Mark, I know you started in 2013 as a personal matter, but how did you get involved? And then how did the firm, uh, which now I think almost exclusively does these Title IX cases, how, how did that happen and how did that develop? Well, thank you for the introduction, Howard. I, as you mentioned, I had a family friend uh, was going to drop their son off at uh, college in 2013 uh, as they stopped by uh, our house uh, before dropping him off to college i told the, the the son hey i'm the i'm the uncle that you call you know at two in the morning and you need help and you don't want your parents to ever find out and um you, you know you can count on me for help and uh you know my friend thanked me because that's what i think what most parents want when they drop their kid off at school uh, their son or daughter off at school, that they're going to be safe and that there's an infrastructure on the college to help them and that there's other people that can step in even when the parents aren't available or even if the uh, the student um, son or daughter makes poor choices in college, that someone's there to help them. Unfortunately, a week later, I get a call that um, he is now being accused of, of rape, of sexual assault on campus. And that was my introduction to the Title IX uh, regulations and the administrative process on campus. And, um, you know, as any good criminal civil with a civil uh, lawyer with a civil background, I, I stepped in and did what I thought was the right thing to do. And, and we were able to get a stay of uh, the administrative action while the, while the case wound its way through Superior Court, then the Court of Appeal. Ultimately, the student lost to the Court of Appeal, but um, the uh, 
that case led to to many others, and the the student uh, was able to go on and complete college elsewhere, and and be successfully enter the prof- uh, profession. That's a great that's a great story, you know, for all lawyers, especially for younger lawyers. You, you mean you were a tax specialist at one time. You never know where the law practice takes you, and it's very important to always be open uh, to helping people, uh, friends or otherwise, when they need help and to look into those areas. You never know how it might develop. When young people ask me whether they should become lawyers, I, I always tell them there there are two things that you ought to think. Are, are you in, interested in solving intellectual puzzles and intellectual combat? But even more important, do you get a lot of satisfaction out of helping people. And if you have those two things, then you're going to have a very satisfying legal career. And I think you're moving into this area, starting with the difficulties of a personal friend, is really an example of how law practice can develop in many ways. Jenna, how did you you get involved in all this? Well, I mean, I kind of came in, I'd never really heard of Title IX before, and I was pretty recently out of law school and kind of deciding whether I wanted to practice law. I'd kind of been unfulfilled by experiences uh, in, in the law practice. Um, and so I, I got an interview with Mark because of uh, somebody that I went to law school with um, who was an associate at uh, Worksman Jackson Hathaway Quinn, where Mark was a partner. Um, and I, I met Mark and interviewed with him and kind of immediately gelled. Um, he told me about, you know, his uh, family friend and some of the cases he was dealing with. Um, I'd read about like the Dixon case um, and Title IX a little bit, and it seemed like something interesting, something that, you know, was developing right at that moment that you could really make a difference in, which is why I went to law school. Um, and so it kind of just the perfect moment, good timing, an interesting topic. And, you know, since then, I think we worked together. That was in 2016. We worked together at Worksman Jackson Hathaway and Quinn. I was Mark's associate. Um, and then that was primarily a, a criminal defense firm. And Mark and I were doing mostly civil stuff. So it kind of made sense for us to go out on our own and start uh, Hathaway Parker. And had you done jury consulting work as well? Uh... Yeah, I was doing mostly uh, like analytical, like research groups, focus groups with jury consulting, which was kind of not really what I went to law school for. And kind of not a lot of room for growth in that area. I mean, what I really was interested in was the due process stuff. Well, let's start and talk about the original cases and and, and the due process. I know there was a time uh, before the Obama administration guidance letter when this was being dealt with, and then the guidance letter came out. Tell us some of the background. I mean, we'll get been a lot of publicity about the current regulations of the Department of Education, which in the popular press are described as the Voss regulations. But before that, there's a lot of history here in terms of the cases uh, and the significance of the guidance letter from the Obama administration. Can you tell us something about that? Yeah, the um, the, the background of the Obama administration letters actually started way back, actually when in 1972 when Title IX started and it's a it's a correct law that's helped millions of people and helped society to level a gender gap at college at, at the time in sports and other types of of spending on college campuses and even the playing field as a father of three college athlete daughters I've benefited greatly from from title IX and scholarships um, uh, dealing with sports but 
discrimination um, also raises its head when when people are discriminated on the basis of their gender by sexual harassment or sexual assault on college campus, and it's a real problem that needs to be addressed. Um, my introduction to it, it with the Occidental case, the first Occidental case I had was somewhat disbelief on the actual administrative process. I was used to administrative um, processes with, uh, you know, dealing with the medical board, uh, board of realtors or board of uh, real estate at the time, department of real estate, and in criminal court uh, and, and in civil matters, often involving, you know, tax, uh, white collar crime types issues. And I used to, you get the evidence, you understand what the charges are, and then there's a process for someone to be able to defend themselves. And it's very frustrating for attorneys when they first enter this field or attempt to help someone, because at the time, especially, you're not told who the witnesses are, you're not told what you're accused of, you're not told what um, actual policy you violated, you're not provided the evidence. Um, and then there's at, at that time there was a hearing. They're not you're not entitled to any type of advisor present at the hearing to help you through this. So it was it was rather um, opaque, non-transparent process, and the ultimate um, uh, result typically is someone loses the right to go to college anywhere in the United States. So the 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 um, ramifications and the punishment that's meted out often leads to life-changing circumstances. Someone who intended to go to medical school won't become a doctor, or law school, engineer, any type of profession. No four-year institution in the United States will accept somebody who's been um, disciplined under Title IX at another university. So it was very, very difficult. And that's what I what struck me. And we started battling back with fighting for rights. But before the, you do that, before we get, before, pardon me for interrupting, but I think it's important maybe to go back in time a little and talk about the reason that this developed. I mean, uh, either of you, Mark or Jenna, comment. I mean, this developed, uh, and to put it in context, out of a, a strong feeling by many people that sexual harassment and assaults that were occurring on campus uh, we're not being, because of a process, uh, because of the complexity of the process, uh, that many victims, alleged victims, victims, but true victims, were reluctant to come forward in the process. And so it was important to make administrative changes in that process to make it easier for those who may have been victims uh, uh, to come forward. What not that part of the equation in the background that we have to talk about in terms of evaluating what what are appropriate procedures here, Jenna. What what do you think? I think that's right, and I think in uh, in around 2011, um, when the Dear Colleague letter was issued, um, that came at a time when the Office for Civil Rights (OCR) and the Obama White House in general were kind of insisting that uh, you know there was an epidemic of, around you know sexual assaults and sexual assaults on campus, and there was a rape culture. And there was the understanding um, that there was a statistic that one in five women were sexually assaulted on college, which I know some people will dispute. But at the time, you know, there are 10 million people who are in colleges. And so it created kind of a, a real stir and a real sense that we need to do something. We need to protect women on campus. 
And so that's why in 2011, um, the Office of Civil Rights, part of the Department of Education, um, issued the Dear Colleague letter, which is kind of a reminder to schools about their obligation to redress sexual violence on campus. Let, let me ask you about Title IX. Let me ask you about that letter. You refer to it as a Dear Colleague letter. Uh, this was not part of an administrative process. Uh, There was no notice of rulemaking, not part of an administrative process. This was simply a unilaterally drafted and sent letter from the Office of Civil Rights, as you said, become well known as the Dear Colleague letter because that that was its uh, salutation. Uh, And yet, arguably, it had no force of effect because it didn't go through an administrative process, but it did have an enormous impact on how schools were handlings, started to handle these matters, didn't it? That's right. And a lot of the reason why it it ended up having a lot of force and effect was because the OCR uh, posted kind of like a burn list of schools that weren't complying. Um, and they, they threatened to um, take away schools' funding if they didn't comply with Title IX. Um, and in 2014, uh, Catherine Lehman issued the Q&A on uh, Title IX um, sexual assault and uh, kind of authorized OCR to investigate um, not just you know one case that involved a complaint, but all sexual assault adjudication uh, at that school for you know up to three years, which would have been a huge burden on the schools. Um, so there were a lot of ramifications if schools didn't comply with what the Obama administration, the Office for Civil Rights, were telling schools that they and, had to do. And at that time, Catherine Lehman was writing on behalf of the Office of Civil Rights. Right. Yeah. So that this universities, we'd want to talk about the impact, but the reason for the impact, the universities faced the problem that if they didn't meet uh, the stated requirements of, of the guidance letter, uh, that they faced uh, uh, they faced in effect a cutoff of Title IX funds, the, a, a draconian result. So given that, what effect did the letter have on the processes that universities used in uh, sexual harassment and assault cases? Well, first, I'd say the letter wasn't exactly specific about what had to be part of a an adjudication at the university. So what this did was it kind of made schools want to over-comply with what they thought they had to do in order to eradicate sexual violence on their campuses. So it, the effect was that a lot of uh, accused students were denied their due process rights um, because schools thought that they had to overprotect victims of sexual assault. In terms of going through this discussion and in terms of the cases, and talk about the cases that you've handled, the the appellate opinions that have resulted, uh, you talk about deprived of due process rights, but what we're really talking about here is at least what was perceived, what is perceived as a balance between not discouraging victims from coming forward and still giving appropriate protection to those who are accused. It's that balance that is at issue here, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And that was what was kind of missing from the earlier guidance. You had kind of a real emphasis on protecting the victims and, um, you know, of course, adjudicating fairly, but the, that fairness wasn't really defined. And so that's why the pendulum kind of swung in the direction of, you know, it was more victim-centric, victim-focused, and now it's kind of had to swing back into providing the fairness to both parties. Well, let's talk about what you perceived as the unfairness in terms of how the what, what it was. There was an investigating officer. Tell us about the concerns without getting, before we get to the cases and the due process issues, 
But Mark, or you know, the, the actual process that then went through involved a single person uh, doing the investigating, making the charge, not permitting confrontation. Just describe that so we'll get a sense of what it was like uh, before you you had these cases and, and contested? Yeah, it's generally referred to as the single investigator model, where one individual acts as the police, the investigating officer, the, the uh, judge, the adjudicating or decision maker, um, and, and then meets out the sanctions. And so all of those roles were wrapped up in one individual, and the perception at the time was there's there's no real presumption of innocence. The presumption was that it whatever was uh, alleged occurred, and the end result uh, you know justified whatever means it took to get there. And so you had, um, a, as I said before, a very opaque process where uh, you know one individual makes all those decisions sees the evidence uh, when you are allowed to see evidence or witness statements. The witnesses aren't identified, and and the information is heavily redacted. And so uh, somebody trying to defend themselves isn't even sure what the actual allegations are um, and, and has no real meaningful opportunity to try to uh, present a defense or to deny the accusation. That's essentially all they can do is deny it. And, and attempt to presume, uh, to overcome the presumption that they're guilty. And then the appeal process was a, uh, generally another university official that's in the same, um, you know, same office that just rubber stamps whatever the initial decision was. And so there's no record, there's no actual hearing, there's no actual witness statements, there's no evidence. Um, it's, uh, you know, close to what was referred to as a star chamber. And I think there were some articles at the time that referred to them that way, that it is all done in a closed door and certainly not anything that most attorney, that any attorney would recognize as a fair process. Now, tell us then, facing this, uh, even before the new uh, Department of Education regulations, uh, there was litigation that you were involved in that resulted in appellate opinions in California that affected the California law, as well as cases around the country, some in federal courts. Tell us about the litigation you handled and the appellate and the appellate law that resulted from your challenges to this. Well, the, um, the one of the significant cases was Bryce Dixon, a, a star uh, player, football player at USC, who was accused and then ultimately expelled from the school in this process that we've discussed about one individual making all the decisions. And that's the um, decision. It's Doe versus Ali. Uh, Keegan Ali was the investigator at USC that handled, uh, that, that made all those decisions. And uh, the result was the Court of Appeal said it's that's unfair. It's lacking in fairness, lacking in due process and fundamentally unfair to have one individual making all these decisions. Before that, just a month before, there was another USC case, um, Doe versus USC in December 2018, that was also decided by the Court of Appeal. And and that was where um, the, the circumstances, you'll often have an investigator come in and speak to some individuals, and there's a new investigator come in, comes in, doesn't re-interview anyone, and 
may speak to one or two other witnesses. And then that's that second investigator that then makes credibility determinations, makes all the fact-finding decisions based on reports written by somebody else without ever speaking to witnesses. And it's also important to keep in mind that the that the schools do not record interviews. So interviews with uh, witnesses, are there's no record of what was actually asked and what the statements were. They're notes taken, and then those notes are summarized later. And it's from that summary that, that the person, that the significant decisions are made. The University of California, for instance, now has a rule that the investigators are supposed to destroy their notes of the interviews. And, and everyone has to rely on the, um, the summary. And there's no mechanism to actually uh, verify what was asked, what was said, what the actual statements were, certainly if there's no hearing. So there's there's uh, th- that was one of the f- the frustrations of the first two USC case that was decided December 2018. Uh, there was one earlier in 2016 um, that um, also brought some some new light and helped the universities understand what was required of them in this process. But you could no longer have uh, two or three individuals do an investigation and then summarize it and make decisions. And then with the Bryce Dixon case, um, it was was determined that having all these reside in the same individual, all these these, uh, authorities reside in the same individual was not fair. And then also we've now come to require some form of cross-examination, some challenge of the story and the witnesses adverse witnesses that's required by due process. Well, let's talk about that even before. I mean, these cases, the reason I talked about the California cases, because these are cases that developed independently in the California courts, even aside from what the new Department of Education regulation requires. So even if there'd been no new Department of Education regulation, these cases in the appellate courts would have set out what the requirements are under California law. And so what did the appellate courts require? You mentioned cross-examination. Do the California appellate cases require the kind of direct cross-examination that occurs in a, in a courtroom? There's several, no, they, not, not what people imagine in a courtroom where it's, it's direct and, and essentially at the same time, um, simultaneous. Uh, the, the type of cross-examination the, that the schools implemented when they were told they have to allow for some questioning is generally the student has to write questions five to ten days ahead of the hearing, and then those are reviewed by a hearing officer or school official to determine which questions they're going to ask. And then those are asked, and then at the hearing, the student can write down other questions, hand them to uh, the hearing officer or a school official, and they may or may not be asked. So it's not at all the type of cross-examination that most people understand. And um, I, I wanted to back up for a second with the with the with the guidance we we used, and we we used the 2011 guidance um, in our litigation against the schools because it does have did have the the underlying form of due process being required and rules being required. And that due process goes back to guidance that was 
part of federal regulations in 2001 that also talked about schools requiring to provide due process um, for for both for all parties for for faculty for students for staff for anyone affected by Title IX that they had to provide due process. So we utilized the 2011 guidance and there was a 2014 questions and answers and and through the the underlying cases that are cited in those um, documents, uh, we succeeded in California to show what due process is. Due process is not a new idea. It would have been around for you know several centuries in this country, and people know what it is when they when they see it, um, and they know when it's missing when it's not there. But the issue and, in, in uh, these area in this area, uh, I. There, the conflict that is talked about in this area, and this is what makes it for lawyers and jurists uh, one of the complex areas, is that if there were, the argument is made at least, that if there were a true due process, the equivalent of a courtroom cross-examination, let's say, uh, where in some cases uh, the student who'd been accused of the assault representing uh, him or herself, would do the cross-examination of the alleged victim, uh, which would be permitted in court for a pro, prayer, uh, a pro se litigant, or even a lawyer doing that, that if victims had to face that in the administrative process in the university, that that would be so traumatic to the victims and so difficult that it would be a disincentive and would inhibit uh, many who've been victimized from coming forward. That I, to the extent I understand it, I think that is the argument that is made in terms of what is due process in this context. Is there a true balance to be decided here, or do you is it your, do you think that there should be what we've thought the true cross examination by counsel or the accused of the uh, of the, of the alleged victim? I mean that's such a difficult question. Oh, I know. That's why uh, I asked. I, think, it. I mean, with a with a compromise, I think no one is going to be, you know, totally happy. I mean, and nobody wants to re-traumatize anyone. But at the same time, expecting to re-traumatize somebody is kind of an assumption that that person has experienced trauma. So starting from that 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 presumption kind of you know makes the presumption of innocence disappear. So it's a very complex issue. Um, I would say that, I mean, I think the way that the regulations put it now by, you know, allowing both students to have an advisor and for both students to question each other kind of at least makes it more fair um, in the way that it, it was in 2011 to 20, you know, 16, 17, 18. There were times when the, you know, complainant story wouldn't be challenged or questioned at all by anybody. So, and I, I think that led to a lot of unfairness and a lot of situations where, you know, pe- a lot of misuse of the process, I would say. So at least here where you have cross-examination, I, I think it's necessary and essential that you have an opportunity to at least challenge the other side. Well, let's talk about then, uh, in addition to the, to the law, the cases that you worked on and represented in the appellate opinions, let's talk about what the current, the newly issued DOE, Department of Education regulations, require in this area. Take us through the process, because I take it, given this uh, issue, given this regulation, 
which it's no secret has become a major, major political issue as well. Uh, so let's focus on what, if the, if the, if the regulation is complied with by the universities, what is the process now that the Department of Education requires in the regulation in terms of investigation, complaint, and follow-on process? I think one of the most important things that the new regulations do is put the focus back on education. The whole purpose of this entire effort is to make sure people have access to their educational programs and activities unaffected and undeterred by discrimination against them. And it used to be that the University of California would ask complainants or victims, are you able to go to class? Can you still study? Are, is your university been interrupted? And they say, no. Well, that should be the end of it. There's no hostile environment on campus that needs to be remedied. That question is just not even asked. What what has happened, I think, in 2017, ATIXA, which is one of the largest um, organizations of uh, Title IX administrators, um, came out with a white paper that referred to this as the sex police, is that's what the universities became. They weren't protecting the right to education. They were trying to go after uh, perceived uh, wrongs uh, that were done and, and essentially work themselves into a situation where they do have to provide uh, due process and, and protect everybody's rights. It's important to notice to note also that probably a third of the cases we have, there's no actual complainant. There's no one saying that they want anything done by the school. It is the school taking action on their own, uh, what they've heard from some other people. And that's where the issue on the cross-examination and lack of hearing is, is so important. Oftentimes, there's no victim that wants to testify. No, but what there's I wanna, no what, one saying that there's a problem, and, but, and yet the school goes after because they've heard about something. But happened. what I want to talk, uh, focus on uh, is not only the criticism of, of a system that previously existed, but how does it now work? Let me ask you, you mentioned that the issue should be purely educational, and if this, if the uh, alleged victim, the victim, is now uh, able to, you know, says there's been no negative impact in terms of educational process. So I just want to make clear it in terms of what you're urging here, that even if there were a victim, that if that victim was a person who was not impacted in their ability to participate in the educational process, that no action should be taken regarding the accused if it were proved that there was a harassment or assault? The, the, the university does not need to intervene, and I think that these new guidelines provide assistance to the university to let it know and colleges to when they need to intervene, and they need to intervene when they have actual knowledge of sexual harassment or allegations of sexual harassment, um, and they need to take action. What happened before is there's no protection so that any rumor that was heard about something that happened has to be investigated and or the university believes it will be punished. No, uh, no, I'm, I, I understand, but I really want to know because yeah. I'm interested. I'm interested in what you said in, in terms of a student who is not negatively affected in terms of suppose there is, suppose you knew that there is a woman who had been assaulted. We, we don't have to go as far as rape or would in the same sort of case, but a woman who a woman on campus and she testifies, this happened, it was terrible, but it didn't affect 
my participation in the educational activity. I'm still able to go to class. I'm still able to participate fully, but I was wronged. And it is proved that she was wronged. So that's the hypothetical I'm setting up. Is it your position that in that case where there has been no negative impact on the victim's participation in the educational process, that the university has no interest in going any further against the person who committed the act? Well, what you describe, if it's possibly a crime, then the university, I think, would have an obligation to report that, whether the the, the victim or, or complainant wanted to. But no, the, the, the purpose of this, the Title IX, is to protect education, and doing that includes dealing with issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault on college campuses. Um, it, it, but the focus needs to be on on education, and the new guidelines do that. I'll, I'll use an example. Uh, we had a case in US, UC Berkeley where the, the individual had been in China um, on an abroad, and two years later, an individual from another university on a different coast said that they were assaulted in China or that there was some uh, sexual misconduct in China. And and um, the university eventually backed down from believing it had worldwide jurisdiction. But aside from the side, I, I understand that there have been very difficult cases here. But the question is this. Does the university have or not have an interest in providing sanction or limitation against an individual who has committed a sexual assault, even if the complainant says my educational life was not affected? I would say yes. And each individual university or college can have those rules, but they have to have rules in place and they have to have processes that deal with those issues and let students know that that's what their position is. There's schools that that disallow premarital sex. There's schools with all kinds of rules regarding sexuality and appropriate behavior. Um, And that's up to each individual college and university to 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 implement but then then it's part of a a rule that somebody can read and understand and agree with and then there should be a fair process when those situations do arise but under the gui- guidance the the schools do not have to they're not required to go after every rumor they hear um or third party hearsay and and um they they have to act where there's actual knowledge and there's a formal complaint. So now a formal complaint is defined in these in the new rules as to what that means. And you'll notice that under the new guidelines even complainant does not mean someone that actually complains. It's an individual who's alleged to be a victim of conduct that could be sexual harassment. So it still allows for the university to take action where there's a complainant that's not doesn't want to voice there uh, doesn't want any action taken, but the university believes it's appropriate to discipline or to ameliorate some some circumstance. So I I, I think with your your hypothetical, I would say yes. It's the, the university has an interest or could have an interest, um, and the college or a college could have an interest, but it, it's not required by these rules. That's up to the, the the university needs to act where they have knowledge, 
They need to take formal action where there's a formal complaint, and that complaint can be filed by uh, a victim or by the Title IX coordinator alleging that sexual harassment occurred. So the colleges can still take that um, take those actions that they believe are uh, important for their campus. Sorry, I, th- I think that's a really difficult issue also, just because this is such a political uh, uh, issue. But I think, I mean, schools aren't prosecutorial agencies. They they don't have a, you know, responsibility to prosecute students they believe are, you know, sexually assaulting others, but they do have a, an interest in protecting the safety of their students on campus. So I, I totally agree with Mark. But cer- certainly, if there were to be complainants who, who say, no, it didn't affect my ability to participate in the educational process. If the university, through an appropriate process, were to identify someone who had committed an assault, or worse than that, had a pattern of committing assaults, even if the victims didn't complain, the university would have an interest in sanctioning or prohibiting activities or dealing with that student, even if there were even if everyone who was who was assaulted said, you know, I just went on with my life, there is a separate and independent, separate and independent interest in the university in how its students act, regardless, isn't there? Absolutely, I do agree with that. The way you've laid that out, and also because it's not just protecting, even if there's say ten people who who weren't affected by it, it's the university has an an, an obligation. Uh, and certainly an interest in protecting that 11th person or other individuals that may be affected by it. But even beyond that, pardon me, affecting the interest of the university, for example, under student codes and other procedures, students who plagiarize or cheat uh, may be expelled from a university or have other sanctions. But the harm there is to the integrity of the university process. Uh, So even though there's no individual that you might say was harmed by it. It's the harm to the integrity of the process. So certainly universities have an interest in in their students' activities if they're harmful to the integrity of the university, don't they? Yes, and these, the new regulations specifically allow for the university to take action under some other student conduct code. It doesn't preclude them from having some other uh, conduct code. It just addresses the st- the university's requirements under Title IX, what the university has to do, must do under the law um, in order to provide, uh, to meet the requirements of Title IX, both for, uh, for for all students. Well, let's then focus back on the regulations. I know we've moved a bit off in terms of the underlying values, but let's get back to, to a claimed, to a victim, an alleged victim. What is What do the regulations now set out that are required in the process, investigation and hearing, that were not previously required by the regulations? Well, there's some, uh, one is the actual knowledge that requires actual knowledge um, by a university official uh, that they're put on notice. Um, And then there's a more formalized complaint process where there, it defines what a complaint means and then what the steps are that the university has to comply with. The, the, the addition that is helpful is supportive measures for both parties, for all students, whether it's a complainant or respondent, that supportive members, uh, sorry, uh, supportive measures by the university can be non-disciplinary, non 
punitive services that help respondents as well as um, complainants that would help them with maintaining their access to their educational programs and activities. Um, and But then it does allow for punitive measures, um, but the focus should be on uh, remediation. Um, there, the, the points that are uh, clearer now is that there's a presumption of innocence. There's a presumption of non-responsibility and that the remedies have to be designed to restore or preserve equal access to educational programs for, for all students, not just um, complainants. What is the change in the complaint process? Is there a change in what must be done to file a complaint that then must be dealt with? I, I don't see any significant difference in the in the formal complaint process uh, in the new regulations than already exists, for instance, at the University of California, the California State University at USC. There's all all of them have a process for a complaint being made and what a complaint means. All right, then take um, us take and, us through then the the stage that I think many of folk. Let's talk about the investigative stage. Is there a change in what is not what is not permitted or is required at the investigative stage after the complaint is made? I think kind of a lot of like basic elements that you would think would have been in the original guidance um, are, have been put into the 2020 regulations. So things like explaining the accusation to the accused, that's something that's in the 2020 regulations, allowing both parties to see the evidence. Um, there's now a choice between using the preponderance of evidence standard or the clear and convincing evidence standard. Um, there's a, a hearing process built into the adjudication. Um, where, you know, both parties have to attend. Um, both parties will have an advisor, and the advisors will conduct the cross-examination or questioning. So those are the main differences I see. Well, let's talk about the hearing then, because I think that's what a great deal of discussion is involved in. Just describe what is now required in the hearing. You say both the complainant and the accused must physically be present during the hearing, or can both physically be present during the hearing? They can be both physically present. There, there was, uh, just to back up a bit on the history of this, back in 2013 and thereafter, there were hearings conducted on campuses regarding sexual uh, misconduct. Uh, then that changed to the single investigator model, um, and then that, that by court action was put back in a relatively recently last year or so, um, back into requiring there to be an, a hearing and that the hearing is decided by someone other than the investigator or the Title IX coordinator. So there, we've been through a number of hearings um, at college campuses where the individuals can be in the same room. There's a divider between them. Uh, they've been done certainly now under the pandemic uh, by Zoom call, but before they were available by video conference. So a complainant or victim need not be in the same room uh, as um, as the uh, the perpetrator, uh, and so there can be a separation. And that was also brought out in a uh, case uh, against Claremont College, I think, also in in late 2018 that there has to be some uh, cross-examination. It, it can be indirect, um, but it, it, the parties don't have to be facing each other in the same room. As a matter of fact, but it has a, to be provided before. As a matter of fact, the regulations specifically 
uh, and I think it's important to, to note part of the regulations specifically provide that at the request of either party, the hearing may be held, must be held in separate rooms with technology enabling them to communicate. So the hearings do provide the opportunity for someone who's concerned about uh, the simultaneous physical presence to have this take place in separate rooms if, if, if it's requested. Am, am I reading that correctly? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Okay. So let's talk then about the cross-examination. Uh, the, under these regulations, uh, either both parties can have advisors. The advisors don't have to be, but may be attorneys. So whether in separate rooms or the same room, do the regulations permit, and it, let's start with this question first, permit an attorney for the accused perpetrator to cross-examine the victim, the alleged victim? Yes, they do. Yeah. And do they permit if a, someone chooses not to engage an attorney, or at least if an attorney or advisor is engaged to do the cross-examination themselves, do the regulations now permit the alleged uh, uh, perpetrator the right to personally, that is by that person's self, cross-examine, whether in the same or a separate room, directly cross-examine? Uh, the uh, victim, the alleged victim. No, they don't. So the individual cannot, the individual accused under these regulations cannot be the one that does the cross-examination. It can only be done by an advisor. Is that is that what they provide? Right, and I think the idea is, is still to protect the, the you know, victim from feeling any sort of trauma. So on, even under these regulations, the victim never directly faces in cross-examination, accusation, or otherwise never directly faces the accused perpetrator in a personal way. It's only through an advisor uh, that, that that examination may, may, may take place. That's right. Okay. Uh, and the regulations also provide, I believe, that there has to be uh, an audio or audiovisual recording or transcript uh, of the hearing. Was that previously required or is that a new... Uh, a new requirement. It, it wasn't required, but most campuses would record, uh, have an audio recording um, so that there was a, a record that could be created for for appeal court or for, for superior court for court challenges. Some schools um, have unfortunately said they will not record uh, the hearings. There's a very, very few of them. I mean, Pepperdine does not record Concordia University does not record, says they were refused to record, um, which makes it, um, which the non-recording alone would, would cause uh, probably a reversal by in a writ of mandate uh, because the school doesn't create a record of the, uh, an adequate record of the administrative action. Now the recipients must, uh, the, the schools must create an audio recording or transcript and make it available to the parties for inspection and review. Um, that's not that doesn't change much. Uh, most people have a phone that can easily record. There's devices that record. If it's a Zoom call, it automatically records. So it's a very simple thing to do, and and should have been done all along. And most universities and colleges have been recording the actual hearings. We'd like to see them also record the interviews, um, so that there's an actual record of what individuals actually said, not just a summary. 
But under the regulations, an, an, an out-of-court statement, even if a signed declaration or affidavit, can or cannot be used by, by the hearing officer. Well, it can't be if, if an individual witness doesn't appear at the hearing and to be questioned, their statement can't be can't be used or relied upon by the hearing officer because they it hasn't there's been no opportunity to question the individual. There's we have never seen a circumstance where there's actual signed statements or affidavits. It's typically just notes taken by an investigator that that reports what the witness may have told them, and and then the summary of that. So you don't have witness statements like most lawyers would understand uh, in these processes. You have uh, summaries of what somebody said, like the FBI 302s, except not by trained uh, FBI agents. By and, and is non- and, and and who is under the regulation? Who has to be the decision maker? Who can be or is the hearing officer that makes a, a decision uh, in, in, in the proceeding? It pretty much defines who it can't be. It can't be the Title IX coordinator, and it can't be the um, investigator. And it has to be someone that with some independence, and there must be um, some steps taken by the university to make sure that there's uh, no bias uh, on behalf of the the Title IX coordinator on behalf of any of the participants in the process. And is there a requirement of a written, uh, of, of of a written equivalent of a judgment or opinion, or can just the uh, blanket announcement of the result be made? Well, I th- I think this is where the it, it, this improves the current process. Most universities and colleges do produce a written decision that. Um, but what it was done essentially by investigators, not in an actual hearing. But there have been, they do produce a, a, a written document that's like a, a judgment or an order that most attorneys would understand or, or, or recognize. Uh, the new regulations lay out exactly what the written determination must include, and it has to tie, you know, evidence and facts to support the determination and conclusions um, how it ties to the to the university's code of conduct and the facts. So there has to be a rationale. It can't be an announcement of like guilty, like a short form of a uh, of a jury oh, a jury verdict. Uh, jury verdict. This has to be a, a, an actual written decision. And there's also case law that talks about um, that decisions, these administrative decisions, have to uh, pr- produce a rationale. Oftentimes, the rationale was was um, not. Uh, not evident, and, and these regulations will make sure that the rationale is provided. Uh, one other point is that the uh, the the universities until now they don't show the students all the evidence. They show the evidence that the university is going to use against the student. So the student is not provided a copy of all the evidence that might have been gathered in an investigation. These regulations require exculpatory and inculpatory evidence to be to be presented not just evidence that the university wants to use essentially the same requirements if, same requirements that are placed on prosecutors to provide exculpatory evidence <laughs> correct i think there would be a lot more uh, prosecutorial uh, uh, pressure on uh, people if the if the government could only would only have to show what what might 
show somebody's guilt that doesn't prove their show they're innocent. I think that's a critical point. I just want to make sure, though, that we cover an important procedural issue here. When you represent a student, let's assume it's gone through this process uh, and that there's been sanctions against the student, perhaps dismissal, perhaps other sanctions. What is the procedure by which you bring this to the trial court at first, I assume? is it, 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 who, who is the defendant? Is it a writ proceeding? And what is the status of the student during the pendency of any litigation that challenges a, a uh, determination by the university? Once there's a final administrative decision made by the university, and that might include, uh, for instance, in the California State University system, an appeal to the chancellor's office, once that decision is final, then the only method uh, available, the only remedy available to a student is to challenge it by writ of mandate uh, to the superior court. There's a case, uh, Pomona College case from some years ago, that requires for both private in colleges and universities and public colleges and universities, that the administrative decision is like any other governmental decision and can only be challenged in, in a, uh, by, a, by appealing to a judge sitting without a jury. And that's under Civil Code, uh, Code of Civil Procedure 1094.5. And so that's the process. No, no other remedy. You can't sue for damages. There's no other remedy available to a student. Typically, if it's possible to to obtain a stay from the court of the uh, the punishment, uh, suspension or expulsion, that that's something that we would uh, work. For instance, in the Bryce Dixon case, he was uh, the court uh, superior court granted our request uh, for a stay of his expulsion, but he wasn't allowed. USC didn't allow him to continue to participate in football or provide any of the other uh, opportunities available for him. But that was stayed. In the case of the Occidental uh, from case that from 2013, that expulsion was stayed, and the stay ultimately was in place for five years, I think. Um, so th- a stay can be put in place, and then there's the writ process that goes through the Superior Court, and then that decision can be appealed to the uh, Court of Appeal. Yeah. Sometimes the colleges appeal those. Uh, sometimes we do. Okay, so the uh, the the answer is that um, uh, bringing it to superior court by way of writ, and there's an independent question about whether a stay uh, ought to be granted in terms of of um, of moving forward. Mark and Jenna, you have taken us through this, uh, and I and I know all those who are listening. Uh, really appreciate the time that you've taken uh, to take us through this this process. And for those uh, who are listening, as I mentioned, you can get MCLA credit on, on the websites. But also in the Daily Journal, uh, there is a treasure trove of articles uh, written by many people, including those of us uh, on, on the broadcast, on these issues. Uh, if you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, you don't have to be to listen to this podcast. But if you're a subscriber... Uh, you can bookmark those articles. You can search for them. After you search for them, you can bookmark them and keep them in a file. Uh, and it is really, I use the word treasure trove because over time it is of some of the most practical and effective uh, writing. Uh, if you're not a subscriber to the Daily Journal and you would like access to those articles, to that, uh, uh, those treasures, uh, there is on the dailyjournal.com website a, a, a blue indicator button labeled subscribe, which would permit you to obtain a subscription to the Daily Journal uh, and have access to all the Daily Journal 
archives as well. But whether you do that or not, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. And Mark and Jenna, I want to thank both of you for so many things which you've demonstrated about the practice of law as a lesson to younger and many lawyers about what can be achieved uh, for your expertise in this area and for taking the time uh, to be part of these Daily Journal podcasts.